As you know, divorce is one of probably the more sensitive topics that we can talk about in the life of the church. Now, normally when people speak about divorce, they want to talk about divorce in terms of numbers. And so they'll, they'll outline statistics. Uh, for instance, uh, recently there was a research done by the National Center for Family and Marriage Research who discovered that divorce rates in the United States are as low as they've been in 40 years. And so you might think to yourself, that's good news for marriage. Uh, marriages are up, uh, divorces are down. And, and yet at the same time, we know that there are those who criticize those numbers and say the reason that divorce is down is because we have more folks who are cohabitating. But if you're just looking at the numbers, it looks like uh, they are hopeful. Now, I actually grew up in a a church where the pastor often reminded us that over half of of marriages end up in divorce, and it's the same in the church that it is in the world. Uh, The encouraging news there is we've actually had someone, Shanti Feldhan, Uh, who is trained in research at Harvard, she actually researched that question and found out that that's not true. Uh, Actually, only uh, we have about 72% of marriages that actually remain until the end. That's what research shows. That's of all marriages. And they also discovered that marriage numbers for the church are even better. Uh, In fact, uh, if you look at marriages for those who are in uh, the church... Uh, they found that those folks who go to church week in and week out, at least regularly, uh, that figure of divorce drops by 20 to 50% more. So it's a good reason to come to church, right? Uh, good for marriage. Uh, but what we know is, when we're thinking about this topic of divorce, uh, it's not just about numbers. And it's not a, a topic that is about uh, something as cold and hard as, as a number or a percentage. Uh, divorce is a sensitive issue that gets to the very heart of who we are as humans in our relationships. And so there's a reason that uh, we find ourselves so often struggling, whether we are Christians or non-Christians, over this reality of broken relationships that pervade uh, our environment. Uh, now, I am I'm grateful that I'm preaching on this uh, now as opposed to 10 years ago. Uh, I think I remember the first time I, I preached on this topic, and it went something like this. God hates it. Don't do it. Let's pray. I, I mean, that, that's probably how it went. We were going through Matthew, and um, I felt like it just needed to be really clear about God's Word, as though everybody was not clear about what God's Word said. Uh, And uh, in those moments, I think I showed about the pastoral sensitivity of a rock. Um, But I am grateful that the Lord sanctifies pastors too. And my hope is, is that this morning, as we think through this topic, we are thinking about it through uh, fresh eyes that are trusting the gospel and understanding what it is that God has for us. I have seen many folks uh, over the the past years who I've counseled, I've had many friends, both Christian and non-Christian, who I've helped walk through difficult marriage experiences and even divorces for a variety of reasons. And I have found that few people enter marriage expecting divorce, and most people know that divorce is horrible even if they don't understand that it's horrible to God. And so this morning, as we are thinking about this, uh, I believe that it is important. I believe it is important that we are careful and clear on this topic, because we are right back in the middle of our Amazing True Story of Jesus series in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark 10, where Jesus speaks on the topic of divorce. 
And, and here he gives us, I believe, what is the strongest statement about divorce in all of the Bible. And we want to make sure that we understand what Jesus means because some of you have been divorced. Some of you are in struggling marriages. And I believe we need to understand Jesus' heart when we think about this topic. And my aim here this morning as we do this is really to avoid one of two errors. Okay, I believe we have one of two mistakes that we often and easily can make. And I want to avoid those. Now, one error that we can make when we think about this topic is we can treat divorce as an unpardonable sin, right? So, so we preach it on it in such a way that we say, you know what, divorce is a special sin that if you've committed it, then there is no way that God is ever going to love you again. Uh, brothers and sisters, I hope you hear me today say that that is not what the gospel has to say for us this morning. But there's a, another way that we can look at it. We can even have another error on the other side, right? And that is when we look at divorce, we say, uh, you know what, uh, it's not the unpardonable sin. In fact, it's kind of just normal. And so we shouldn't really make a big deal about it. And, and to those folks who say that divorce isn't important or a big deal, uh, we need to remind them that Malachi says that God hates divorce. And that's true. And so with those true, two truths, um, uh, with that truth of, of the gospel and what it has to say to marriage, we need to be careful that we don't fall off into either of those two pits as we are trying to help others understand what God has to say about marriage. Now, I just want to mention as we begin, because of the culture that we live in, that I do believe that marriage is between one man and one woman uh, for life until, until death separates them. I believe that's a context for marriage as Jesus speaks about it. And I also want to make mention of the fact that I believe that Jesus uses this conversation here about divorce. Hear me closely. He uses this conversation about divorce to actually pivot to the more important issue behind divorce, which is their hearts. In other words, Jesus has some folks who are going to come to him and they want to set the agenda. We want to talk about divorce. And Jesus says, I want to talk about your hearts. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Our big idea is this. It's that Jesus says divorce exposes hard hearts who need help that only Jesus can provide. We're going to see this morning that Jesus says divorce exposes hard hearts who need help that only Jesus can provide. And we're going to be thinking about that this morning. Here's the first thing that we're going to see. We find this in verses 1 to 2. It's that the Pharisees sought to shame Jesus over divorce. The Pharisees sought to shame Jesus over divorce. We, we see that in the first couple of verses. Look what it says. It says, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them and Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now you'll notice here again that we've gotten to that second half of the gospel of Mark where they've started their journey towards Jerusalem. They're going south from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and mobs are continuing to gather around Jesus because they want to to hear anything it is that that Jesus has to say. And this, this event and moment sets the stage for Pharisees who are coming up, showing up, to see Jesus. Now, I don't know what happens in your mind. My mind is pretty active. And so when I read, I'm always having crazy thoughts. And I always imagine that as the Pharisees show up to hear Jesus' teaching, it's like the Imperial March is their theme music, right? That's Darth Vader's music if you don't know Star Wars. And, and you know that when that music plays, something bad's about to happen, right? And so here we have, all of a sudden, the Pharisees, aka Darth Vader's minions, showing up 
right, to attack Jesus. Now you'll remember first century Israel would have been a culture of honor and shame. Uh, They were much more group and community oriented than we are. We're more individualistic and think about ourselves and freedom and privacy. Uh, They thought more about how do I look in the group? How am I going to be thought of before others? Uh, That's what defines my identity. Well, here it makes a lot of sense because the Pharisees, you'll notice, constantly come to Jesus when he's in public. Why? Because they want to publicly shame Jesus. They, They want to show that Jesus has some glitches in his teaching. And they want to make everyone aware of the fact that he is not so good a teacher and rabbi as they think. Uh, That's why the Pharisees have come to Jesus in this public uh, sphere. And that's why you'll notice that it's the disciples that are actually always coming to Jesus in the private sphere. It's because they want to hear from Jesus while others want to expose him as not truly being someone to follow. Anyway, what we find here, you'll notice, is that the Pharisees have come and they have tried to silence Jesus again and again. But here they are again showing up, and this time they ask this question. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Of course, I believe that divorce would have been as sensitive of an issue for Jesus' audience as it is for us. Divorce was very common in Rome, and, and kids usually would go with the dad whenever they would have a divorce. Jews, on the other hand, they, they accepted divorce as well. And the divorce contract that they would often allow a man to give his wife, not wife, her husband usually, uh, would say something like, you are free. And what that meant was they were, once they were divorced, free to marry someone else without any kind of legal uh, precautions. They were free to remarry. And only husbands usually initiated that Jewish divorce. But Romans, they would allow a woman to divorce as well. So culturally, there were some differences there. Now, Now here, Jews... Uh, would have been looking specifically at Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, as they are having an argument about divorce and how they were to understand it. And so as they're looking at it, uh, we know that there were a number of different schools about how to interpret Moses' words there. And these are the words that Moses gave them about divorce. He says this in verse 1, If then she, the wife, finds no favor in his being the husband's eyes, because he has found some indecency in her hand and sends her out of his house, uh, it is okay to divorce her. In other words, if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency found in her, it's okay to divorce her. Now mainstream rabbis of the day, they would have taken this in different ways. They had different interpretations, right? You would have had different study Bibles with different applications. And so you would have had maybe uh, one school, the Shammai school over here, who had one opinion. And then on the other hand, you would have had the Hillel school. Now Shammai, that that school, they were uh, a little stricter. They were a stricter school. And what they would have taught is that you can divorce a woman. They all said it's okay, it's possible to divorce. But they said you can divorce in this case uh, that she has found some indecency in her hand, which to them meant that she had committed adultery. So if there was adultery, Shammai said, you are free to divorce. Now on the other hand, Hillel, they were a little bit more loose on the reasons that, I mean to put it mildly, on the reasons that you could divorce a woman, right? And so they would say, um, you know what, Uh, this idea of finding something indecent in her, really, it, it just seems pretty broad. And so it could encapsulate all kinds of things. 
So for instance, you might want to divorce her uh, because uh, maybe, um, for instance, you don't see her as pretty as she used to be. Uh, Or maybe it's because um, she hasn't been able to provide you for a a child for 10 years. Or if she acts in some ungodly way, she's not as spiritual in you. Or if she burns the bread. If she burns the bread, she's out, right? And so these are the ways that they interpreted Moses in in Deuteronomy 24. All kinds of ways. And so here, as they show up to Jesus, they're saying, okay, we got Shammai, we got Hillel. Where do you fit into this paradigm? We've heard that you're kind of weird on this, and so we think this is a great occasion for you to make lots of enemies. Well, that may sound petty, but it also might sound familiar. I mean, as I've been thinking about this topic all week, um, I've been struck by how immersed our culture is into this idea of divorce and how lightly we treat the topic. Uh, I don't know, if, if you drive a block this way, you'll actually find a yard sign that says that you can get a divorce for $299. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that you can ever get a divorce for $299 and that's all the, the only cost it'll cost you, it's a, a flat-out lie. If you've been through divorce, you know that it costs you a lot more than that. Uh, we know in our culture that as we look around us, we have all kinds of folks who are divorcing for all kinds of reasons, petty, self-interested, self-indulgent reasons, reasons maybe that in our hearts we have thought ourselves, maybe we're angry about our marriage for these things, but they say them out loud and they follow through with leaving their wives or husbands because of these things. Uh, I married a young woman and her husband, um, and uh, not six months later she came to me and said, I want to divorce my husband, and here's why, because I want to date other men. I said, well, yeah, you can't date other men if you're married. Uh, The answer isn't divorce though, right? And so she said, I want to divorce him, and she, she left and divorced this man. Uh, and here's the reason, uh, after I had some dialogue with her over email before she shut me down, uh, she said this, she said, I just can't believe that Jesus doesn't want me to be happy. And so in her mind, Jesus wanting her to be happy meant for her to be able to date whoever she wanted to be, even though she had committed before God in marriage with her husband, a girl in a church, married in a Christian wedding with Christian parents. And I read an article just yesterday uh, that had a list of strange reasons that people got divorced. Catch this one. One guy took his wife, his new bride, to the beach, and he divorced her when they got out of the water because he said he had never seen her without makeup before. And he felt lied to. This is real stuff. The way that we view marriage created by God. Now, I know these are anecdotal, but take Note that there is no longer a stigma over divorce like there once was culturally. Yet the the pain and the destruction and thus the the sensitivity of this topic lives. And, And catch this, the Pharisees, they seem to have caught wind that Jesus is teaching on this topic went further than the other teachers of the day. And they were seeking to expose this, to shame him. But catch this, if Jesus is king, and, and hear me close, this is for you. If Jesus is king and we are not, please hear this, we ought to expect that there are things that Jesus is going to tell us that we ought to do, ways that we ought to live that are going to be uncomfortable, right? I mean, if Jesus only taught us to do things that we already wanted to do, we wouldn't need him, right? You don't need a king for that. Yet here, what we find is is that Jesus has come and He has given us a challenging teaching on one of the most sensitive issues of our lives. 
And let me just encourage you this morning that you, me, we need to hear from Christ this morning and ask that he would transform us all. This isn't something that just folks who have been through divorce need to hear. This is something that if you are single, you need to know. We need to work this out on the front end. What does it look like to pursue marriage in a healthy way? If you're in the middle of marriage, you need to be thinking about what it looks like to live in a healthy marriage because catch this, divorce is the breaking of what God hopes to be healthy and God-glorifying. And if you're this morning someone who's been divorced, then this is a message who I pray has hope for you as well. So are you ready to hear from Jesus this morning? And how he responds? Let's see. Uh, Look with me. Verses 3 to 9. Verses 3 to 9, here's how Jesus responds. Now I love this. Take note of this, Christians. Jesus does what you and me need to do when we answer questions. He doesn't cheat, right? He's fully human. And so when he has a tough question, what does he use to answer it? The Bible, right? And so here what we find is Jesus says, I'm going to give three texts to you, three texts to help answer this question. We're going to talk about Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 real quickly, and then I'm going to pivot and I'm going to jump to two more texts that actually take you before Deuteronomy 24 to creation. And so we're going to look at Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. And he says these texts together are going to actually give you the framework for the way that I'm thinking about marriage and divorce. So look first at what he says in verses 3 to 5, where he actually is, is speaking about Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. And here what he says, he starts off with saying, Moses permits divorce. Moses permits divorce. Look at verses 3 to 5. Here's what he says. And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So he begins there in Deuteronomy 24. And he says, catch this, don't miss what Jesus says. Moses here, he says, he doesn't advocate for divorce. He permits it because of your hardness of hearts. Doesn't advocate it, he permits it. And and that might sound like a small but a significant difference. There is a huge chasm between advocating for, promoting, and permitting because of a hardness of hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He says here that God permitted divorce in the law of Moses because their hearts were hard and the world is a broken place. That's why divorce. It is because it is a broken world and we have broken hearts and things do not work the way that they were supposed to. See, God permitted it because our hearts are sinful and the world is broken, and we did that. But, catch this, the need for permission reveals the bigger issue of our hearts. God had to make a permission because our hearts have an issue that needs to be dealt with. So Jesus then says, let me me do this. Let me take you back to Eden before Deuteronomy 24, right? Let me take you back to Eden in Genesis 1 and show you how this story unfolds. And so second, he takes him to Genesis 1.27 in verse 6. And and there he points, Jesus points to pre-fallen condition. He points to pre-fallen condition. And look look what he says in verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And here's what I believe that Jesus is doing. That God created man and woman to uniquely image him as the pinnacle 
of creation, right? We see that in Genesis 1. Everything is, is being created and building up, and then he creates man and woman. There they are, sitting at the pinnacle of creation, where they are to uniquely, as distinct from everything else that has been created, they image God. And not only they image God, they image God in that they have dominion over everything else that's been created. That's who man and woman are. So that when God created man and woman, he created them distinct and different, and yet equal in in both value and dignity and, and worth. And so, though he created them equal and distinct, he said that you also have distinct roles in both the home and later in the New Testament, the church. Now, why does they have different roles between men and women at home and in the church? Well, one is creation, right? There's a distinction. And then new creation, we'll see a distinction show up. But here what we find is, is that that is creation prior to the fall. Good creation that God created man and woman. Now, here's why that matters. If man and woman stand as the pinnacle of God's creation, his good creation on the sixth day, they are the, the, pin, the, the ultimate expression of God's good creative work on that sixth day. Then what we know is, is that God resting on the seventh day tells us that the culmination of that good creation is God's glory, right? In other words, if, if we look at the sixth day, we see that man and woman are the pinnacle of God's good creation, but the culmination of all of that is the glory of God. So they might be the ultimate expressions of God's, of God's glory, but ultimately all glory is due Him. So that means that the relationship between man and woman, hear me, it is, it is most about God. Now, here's the way I like to think about this. Okay, by, by way of a, a quick application. The unity of man and woman in marriage, it can, be, it can bring great immediate ends, Right? There are lots of good things immediately that marriage brings to us. Uh, We know these things. Uh, You'll notice that the immediate ends that are brought to us that are so sweet are are things like physical pleasure or or great emotional encouragement. Or how about just laughter? Isn't laughter in marriage good? Isn't there a unique marriage laughter that you have? I hope you do. Uh, there, there are other sweet fruits. We, we find the sweet fruit of increasing holiness. Or, or what about highlighting diversity and unity? I mean, men, can we say that women are different than us in some ways? Wives, you can probably say that your husbands are different than you in some ways. And, and though sometimes those can be difficult things that cause relational friction, they're also glorious things, and that's the, why, the reason that we came together in the first place, right? Or what about companionship? Or a a multiplying of offspring and so on and so forth. So many sweet fruits that are immediate ends of marriage. But that's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is the glory of God. And so when we think about marriage, what that means is, is that these are the sweet fruits of marriage. And we need to consider this, husbands. We are called as husbands to point out and to highlight those sweet fruits. Let me just ask you real quick. I don't have time to dwell here. But husbands... How much time and attention do you put on pointing out the sweet fruits of your marriage? Is that a daily habit that you're trying to think through, what can I expose is good in this marriage? Uh, Let me just say, I probably don't do it as well as I should. You can ask Carrie later. I'm sure she would be happy to give you examples. But that's something that all of us 
should long to do and seek to do better. Showing the good fruit that comes from marriage. Helping our wives and our family see how sweet marriage is. But Jesus, notice here, the main point is that Jesus here uses Genesis 1 to drive attention to a pre-fallen creation. With man and woman as a pinnacle. And he does this before landing the plane in Genesis 2. Now Genesis 2, you'll remember, is where uh, God actually shows how man and woman uniquely were created. Now look at Genesis, uh, how Genesis 2.24 is used in verses 7 to 9. And this is where Jesus is going to argue that one flesh is one flesh. One flesh is one flesh. Look what he says here in verses 7 to 9. He says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. Now just take note that Jesus understands Genesis 2.24 to say that marriage between one man and one woman creates a God-empowered bond that can't be broken by human hands. Did you see that? He didn't stutter. It was pretty clear. In other words, Jesus points to the ideal of a good marriage prior to the fall, which is characterized by what I would call shalom in the home, right? You've got a peaceful home life. And just think about this. Isn't that ultimately what all of us want is shalom in the home? I mean, isn't the reason that we work hard, that we, we, we seek peace with God and seek peace with others, it's the glory of God, but we know that ultimately we can sense that most acutely where? In the most intimate resources, recesses of our lives. And where's the most intimate room in your, your home? No, it's not the bathroom, it's the bedroom, right? It's the bedroom. That's where you see the core of, of your creation and, and where you want it to sing to the glory of God. That there is peace between God and man. That's really what we long for. We long for peace in the family. Peace in the home. Shalom in the home. Because that shows that things are right between us and God. And things have not been right in marriage ever since the fall. Why? Well, because once that happened, we had broken relationship with God. And this doesn't work like it was supposed to. And so as we look here, Jesus is saying, take note, there is no way to break apart marriage. So as you're looking at the carnage of the marriages all around you, what it says is, there is something much greater that's going on here than this little debate that you guys are engaging in about if burnt bread or adultery lets you get out of your your divorce or your marriage or not. He says there's a much bigger issue. You know, you long for the holistic kind of peace that's experienced by a man and a woman in God's world, whereby they live a fruitful life of dominion in his world to the glory of his name. Now hang on tight. Jesus does a few things here. First, here's what Jesus says with this statement. One, I am not Shammai and I'm not Hillel and I've not come to follow in their footsteps. I am Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords. I am not measuring my teaching by their teaching. I speak as the authority of authorities. And if you're going to please God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to him except through me. That is the first thing that we see here clearly from Jesus. Jesus, (laughs) he didn't come to conform to your expectations. And he did not tell you that you can please God on your own. That's not why he came. Jesus, catch me, he did not come to hand out participation awards. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to say, there is one king, there is one Lord, and that is me. 
As Jesus came, he came to reveal himself as unlike any other. And just by side note, if you want to glorify God, you don't ultimately follow Shammai or Hillel. You don't ultimately follow Matt Chandler, John Piper, Max Licato, or Beth Moore. You follow Jesus Christ. Now, you follow the voice of Jesus in his word. Now, there's a second thing I think that he's doing here in, in this verse, in verses 7 to 9. I think that Jesus says the question about divorce exposes the bigger issue of their hearts. See, if the shalom in the home, if it's been disturbed, disrupted, broken, cracked open, it points to a creation that is undone. It points to chaos. It points to a broken world, which is seen most acutely in marriage, which is where God's creation should be most evident. God's goodness, right, should be most clearly seen in relationships and relationship between man and woman, and yet that is where it's mostly broken. See, when burnt bread is separating marriages God has put together, we know it takes bread from heaven to put our relationships back together again. See, Jesus, amen, I love that, uses, does it? He uses divorce here, catch me, to pivot to a bigger issue than broken marriages. See, he, he's here saying the, the bigger problem isn't just your marriage. Creation itself is coming undone all around you. And you're thinking about marriage, which is great to think about, but don't miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture is a broken world. And third, third thing we see in this particular text is that Jesus doesn't offer Christian advice on how to deal with divorce here. Did you notice that? doesn't offer practical applications, suggestions, Jesus knew there were divorced people out there who need Jesus, and he doesn't talk about what it looks like them to come for Jesus, right? He doesn't do that. Why? Because he wants them to understand there is more going on here that they need to be taking into consideration. Now, that's amplified in verses 10 to 12 when the disciples come to Jesus. They come to Jesus alone in the house. And I wonder if they were asking Jesus if this hard teaching was maybe just another parable that they'd misunderstood, right? Could you clarify? I mean, that sounded pretty harsh the way you said that. Harsher than what we see in Matthew. What's going on here? And here's what he says. Third, the disciples, what we see here, they they listen to Jesus about marriage. They listen to his voice. They want to hear his voice. And here's what he says in verses 10 to 12. He says, and in... The house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And, just in case you you missed it, it works for the wife as well. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. See here, divorce, it assumed remarriage. In fact, the writ, a document that you would give out for divorce, it basically said you're free to remarry. That, that was what was attached to it. And so here Jesus says, whoever divorces and remarries commits adultery. Now don't miss this. I believe that Jesus intended to expose their hearts more than offer practical advice on their divorces. I think that we, we need the rest of Scripture to help us understand divorce. And, and I believe that it would be pastorally insensitive to kind of catapult over offering help and thinking through this topic because some of you are thinking, well, now I don't know what to do with the fact that Jesus said that divorce isn't real. Like, what do I do if I'm divorced? How do I please God? And so what I would like to do, I'd like to really become much like the children that Jesus speaks of in verses 13 to 16 who 
who come to Jesus completely dependent on his word and his leadership. And I want to think through some New Testament texts to help us think rightly about this really sensitive issue of divorce. So I've got four things I want to think about uh, when we think about divorce. Uh, Four, I want to start off with leadership. When it comes to leadership, I believe that it's important that leadership begins, that, that they begin by giving a healthy vision of what marriage looks like. It's important that good marriages begin with the leadership that is up front and leading you. And so at church, we, we, um, we look at the Bible and what the Bible says about this particular issue. So 1 Timothy 3, for instance, in verse 2, it says that elders are to be husbands of one wives, which literally translates one women men. Now, the way that we understand that, we, we think that you can be single and be an elder. But here's the thing. I think that the, the phrase, one woman man, is, is actually harder than just the fact that you have one wife at a time. Here's why. You can be single and not be seen as a one woman man. Now, this might be hard culturally for some of you guys. Uh, I grew up in a culture where like the, the supreme sort of um, uh, ideal uh, statement or characteristic that could, you could have said about you is that you were a ladies man. If you were a ladies' man, that meant like, oh, wow, all the girls like you, and that's just a great thing. Guess what? Biblically, as far as leadership, that's not a great thing. That's actually a bad thing. It's impediment to leadership. So, so even single guys, if you want to be elders, you can be, we feel like you can be elders if you're qualified in all the other ways. But just recognize that, that you still are held to this standard of being known as a one-woman man. You're not a serial dater. You're not you know, getting around. You are a one-woman man. You have an eye towards your future wife, whoever that is, and you treat other women who are Christians as sisters in Christ, and those who are not, you're more concerned about them coming to Christ than, than them becoming uh, your girlfriend or whatever. You know, that's the, state, uh, that's the nature of, I think, what leadership looks like from a single position. Uh, we also think that, uh, that the elders, that it is possible that perhaps uh, in the past you have, um, you've had a divorce and Perhaps you could be an elder. Now, we can't flesh out what all that looks like. But we do believe that it's actually a harder um, calling that you be known as a one-woman man than just to say that you have one wife at a time. Here's why. If you get a reputation for being someone who is not a one-woman man, how much harder is it to lose that reputation and gain a reputation for being a a one-woman man? Isn't that more difficult to create that reputation once it's lost? You know, for some, it might take you 10, 20, 30. Some of you might not ever be able to get that reputation back. doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you if you've repented and turned to him. But it might mean that you don't get that reputation that you need to be able to lead the people of God. So let me encourage you, if you are single, if you're divorced, uh, if you are married, uh, men, let's be one-eyed men who are looking towards our wives and our spouses to the glory of God. That's what the calling is. That means in the way that we look at media, that means the way that we look at where our eyes are traveling and roaming. It means it, it, it affects the way that we think about relationships with others. We need to be one-eyed, one, um, we have a one-eyed vision towards marriage and others. Uh, that's leadership. Second, uh, singles. You know, if you're thinking about divorce, like one of the reasons uh, I believe that we don't do well with divorce and protecting against it is we don't hit our kids at the beginning and our young people at the beginning with good teaching on what marriage ought to positively be and and how we ought to pursue spouses. If we do that better, I believe we can create an environment where we have healthy marriages. Now, let me just be really clear. Please hear me. You can follow all of the rules. You can marry a a Christian girl or a Christian man. You can be faithful. 
you can go to church and life can blow up on you because we live in a broken world. But we also trust that the Holy Spirit helps His people. And when we are faithful, God is for us and, and He is good and He helps us and He helps our marriages. And there's no hope of a good marriage apart from Christ and from His Spirit. And so, uh, if you are single, let me just encourage you, have a high view of marriage and do this in two ways. One, don't idolize marriage and two, don't ignore it. Don't idolize it and don't ignore it. Now, here's what I mean. You don't need to idolize marriage. You know, I know that some, even in the church, have propagated this idea that the Holy Land is actually a marriage certificate. Like, if you get a marriage certificate, you're going to be happy and healthy and life is going to be good for you for the rest of your life. Bad things won't happen. And then here's what happens. You get married, and guess what? It's not that way. Like, you will actually have disagreements with your spouse. Uh, You'll actually have ways in which they don't always affirm you. Can you believe that? There'll be times where they might actually say things that discourage you. Uh, There might be ways in which uh, you have difficulties personality-wise. Like, you might marry somebody who's OCD, and they need the cereal box to be at exactly 90 degrees on the edge of the table, and you might not care, and that war over the cereal box could almost ruin your marriage. And all of a sudden, you understand burnt bread breaking up marriages, right? Like, we need to make sure that we are not idolizing marriage as the ultimate expression of humanity. Or, or, or think, think that we are not fully human unless we are marriage. That is not the message of the Bible. In fact, Paul is fascinating. In 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two to 33, he says, for me, uh, actually being married isn't the idol or the, the, uh, the best example of what you can be. It's actually being single. Now, where would he have gotten that from? Catch this. Jesus was the most human human to ever live, and he never got married, and he never had kids. And so what that means for us is, is that there is something more that we can see about being human that is special and intimately tied into being single if you're single. There are benefits to that. Have you thought about the benefits package that comes with singleness? Maybe it's not the things you're thinking about right now. But there are all kinds of ways that singleness can actually give you more opportunities to serve God and love others and to give yourself to God. In fact, Paul was that way. And he says in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two to 33 Here's the benefit for the unmarried single man. It's that the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, and that's a good thing. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. In other words, he can be fully devoted to the things of God. Is that you if you're single this morning? Are you thinking like, wow, I'm freed up to do this until God gives me a spouse? You should. It's a gift. It's a blessing. And marriage, let me just say, it's not a joy fest. Now, some of the greatest joys are in marriage. But joy is a fruit. And fruit, any fruit, hear me, that is sweet takes lots of work. If you think you're going to get sweet fruit without hard work and sacrifice, you're lying to yourself. It's not the way the world works. You know, I um, think that what this means for us is that we as Christians ought to be thinking about how a single person gets married in different ways than our culture does. So you might have actually learned as a Christian single person how to find a husband in the way that the world does because that's what you see around you. But I think that we ought to be thinking about it in different ways. Uh, Some of those ways would be, actually, if you're looking for someone, like try to find them in a group with others around you that help you see your blind spots so that you find out, so that you're not like sort of, uh, you get these rose-colored glasses. You know what I'm talking about, the rose-colored glasses. Have you ever had rose-colored glasses with somebody? Some, Some people are sort of shaking. You know where you meet somebody and you get really excited and you're like, I think I found somebody sinless and I think I should marry them and lock them down right now. 
Let me, ha- let me tell you what happens. You, you marry them and you find out they're actually a sinner too. And, and the Bible said that, but you missed that part because you saw them and you thought, it might be Jesus' cousin or something. And then you marry them, and then here's what happens. Marriage gets really hard real quick, and that excited person that was so enthusiastic that they got engaged and married in three weeks is all of a sudden walking around with a frown on their face all the time. And why? It's like, I got lied to. She actually has sinned, and she sins sometimes. See, I think that it's helpful to have other mature people help you as you're pursuing someone for marriage. Try this. If you're thinking about marrying somebody, why don't you seek premarital counseling before you get engaged? Like, rather than getting engaged, because once you buy that ring, man, that's a lot of commitment. And once you send out those invitations, it's hard to stop that train. But if you go in for premarital counseling before you get engaged, that helps you decide, like, is this a wise thing? Should I be thinking about this or not? Here's the thing. I was reading a book recently where an Indonesian uh, pastor, a missionary, was in Indonesia. And he's over there, and he was telling them about how single people become married. And he says, oh, that sounds, um," and they were trying to be kind, like, horrible. He's like, why? And they were like, well, you're sending off someone young to make the most important decision of their life, and you're letting them do that alone? Like, that seems like neglect. So are we neglecting ourselves and and others in the way that we're pursuing marriage because we have idealized or idolized marriage in such a way that is more colored by culture? And let me also encourage those of you who are ignoring it. Maybe you're a man this morning and you're just ignoring marriage. You're not taking it seriously. Uh, do not put off marriage if, if you know that you have a woman who's godly and loves you and others would encourage you to marry who is, who is godly. Marry her. Commit to her. Don't hesitate. Seek counsel. Third, married folks. You know, maybe you've considered divorce this week and maybe this message is hitting you in all the wrong places. And maybe it's hitting you in all the right places. See, we should hate divorce because God does. Now, there are all kinds of reasons that we might hate divorce. You might hate divorce this morning as a married person because it's expensive. It's also coupled with horrible fights. It's damaging to kids. All kinds of stuff. But as the people of God, we ought to be most saddened by divorce because of God's heart towards divorce. See, our heart should be grieved by divorce because God hates it. And Jesus had to die. Because our relationships are so broken and our marriages are actually plaintiffs exhibit A of that reality. And and so God, uh, we are told, uh, loves marriage and we ought to love marriage as God does. And Jesus revealed the, the mystery of the meaning of marriage and why God created man and woman after Jesus died and was raised again in Ephesians 5. And they were told that actually marriage between man and woman was created as a picture, a foreshadowing picture to help us understand the love of Jesus for his church. And so he sacrificed his life for her. And for me and you, that gives us a picture of what our marriages ought to mean. It's a relationship where we sacrifice ourselves for our brides and they submit to us as the church submits to Christ, all to the glory of God. See, our gospels, they, our marriages speak to the gospel. So let me ask you this morning, if you have a Christian marriage, what does your marriage say about the gospel? Man, are you leading sacrificially as Christ does, putting your wife's desires and needs first? And women, are you submitting to your husband as the church is to submit to Jesus? If not, what needs to change today? Let me give you just a couple of practical lines that have been helpful for me in my marriage. There have been a couple that that run through my mind all the time. Uh, The lines are this, the first is this, I woke up with the worst of sinners today. This actually helps my marriage. And the other is, I woke up with a stranger. Right? So the first one, I woke up with the worst of sinners today. 
And that's me, right? Like I often, when I wake up, want to think that my, my biggest problem is out there. And if it's a problem with my wife, it must be her fault, right? Like it's got to be her. But I think that what we need to recognize is the Bible says that our biggest problem is ourselves in marriage. And we need to repent of sin. We need to love them. We need not to be so worried about having them fix themselves as we are about fixing ourselves. We need to get the, the log out of our own eyes before we start worrying about the specks in others. The other is I, I woke up with a stranger. And it's my wife, right? Now, now, here's why I say this. I have so many people that come to me for counseling and they say, this is not the woman, this is not the man I married. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, was there a switch in the car ride over? And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. She wasn't like this when we got married. The funny thing is often you look at the guy and you're like, well, you're not like you were when you were married, right? I was different when I got married. The reality is, is that we are unlike God in the fact that we do change, and we're going to change. Our personalities are going to change. We're going to go through sufferings. Your husband or wife might get sick. And when we commit, that's what we're committing to. We're committing to the change. We're committing to whatever this person becomes, to the glory of God. That's part of what makes glorious covenants glorious. There's a final thing that we've got to look at this morning as we move along, and that's this. We need to see what this means for divorced folks. Don't miss this. Divorce isn't the unpardonable sin, if that's you this morning. You've been divorced and you're thinking, there's no hope for me, there's no forgiveness for me. Uh, Not an application for married folks. To married folks, we would say, love your spouse, be faithful. To those who have been divorced, we would say, it's not the unpardonable sin. And, And here, Jesus, we are told clearly that Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. And that means that 1 John 1.9 is for you too. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let me just commend once again that in this verse, all means all. All unrighteousness. And so that, that might be you this morning. You just need to be reminded that the Gospel really is as good as God says it is. And please hear me. I, I don't think also, as we think about divorce, that all... Both parties are always equally culpable in a divorce. You know, I know that some come in and and sometimes we say it's a 50-50 kind of deal or it's a 100-100, but I've seen so many situations where I just, I don't think that's the case. See, Jesus tells us uh, really that divorce reflects a deeper problem. We are sinners living in a fallen world and the world doesn't work right. We don't work right. Our marriages don't work right. And don't miss this. You can't attempt to date well, marry well. You can do all of those things and the world, catch this, can still blow up on you and your marriage. Doing everything right and still the world blows up because we are fallen people in a broken world. You know, I went to seminary with a guy, really, really good guy, um, and his wife all of a sudden decided that while he was in seminary, she was going to start sleeping around. And she would be gone most nights, many nights, and she would come in and tell him about her exploits. And she did this with him for years. And we uh, prayed with him through this. Uh, the elders worked with him through this, sought counsel for many years, tried to get her to come back. She ran further and further away, quit coming to church, quit seeking reconciliation, absolutely ran. And finally, uh, we... We, uh, our elders actually gave him the, the permission, didn't advocate, gave him the permission in that circumstance to have a divorce. And why? Because she was no longer, she was making a mockery of the institution of marriage. See, marriage is about faithfulness and the picture of God's glory. But don't miss this. God gives us hope in our marriages through the gospel. And, and this man... Uh, had a glorious story of God coming in and gave him a wife and a child. And he's living a glorious marriage today to the glory of Christ. And in through all that, 
I actually saw and was encouraged by this brother's faithfulness, being faithful in many ways. I couldn't imagine myself being faithful in his pursuit of his wife who continued to run for him. So do I think that this man was a worse husband than me because he's divorced? No. But catch what this does mean. It means that we, have, we don't have second-class citizens in the kingdom of God if you've been divorced and you're in Christ. Your identity is wrapped up in Christ and He will change your life. So like Jesus and Moses, we never advocate divorce. God hates divorce. But we do see in Scripture a couple of uh, opportunities uh, where, where we are challenged to think through, is there permission? So the couple that we have are one, uh, in cases of abandonment, so 1 Corinthians 7, 15, uh, a case of abandonment. Uh, there we're told, uh, you'll remember by Paul, that if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, and in such cases... The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now you might say, well, what's abandonment? I think abandonment sometimes is hard. Um, uh, I remember one time we had uh, a lady who her husband had been like slipping arsenic into her water and was trying to kill her. And uh, then we confronted him and he ran. And, you know, that, that's one case of, yes, definite abandonment. Um, sometimes abuse, if there's abuse, we, we will definitely protect the woman, the wife, and make sure that she is safe and her kids you know, those are kinds of abandonment that we see. Uh, the second kind of case where we see there are sometimes opportunities where we need to think through, is this, is this permissible for, for separating, would be sexual sin. And that comes from the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And that word uh, for sin, sexual sin there, pornea, is uh, actually a word that would have included um, adultery. It would have included uh, prostitution or other forms of sexual sin. And so we believe that these are, um, in this case, unrepentant sins. In other words, when these things happen, I mean, if somebody slips arsenic in your water, we're probably going to do something. But if, if these things happen where there's abandonment or there's sexual sin, Like, we're not advocating every time that you divorce. In fact, we would say reconciliation is always what we hope for. We would love to see God restore marriages that have had horrible brokenness enter them and to see God's light spread into that dark relationship. But these are grounds where where we will talk about it and we will try to help people through it. But don't miss this. We don't advocate for divorce, but there are times where it's permitted. And the hope is always that reconciliation would be brought about. That should be our heart's desire, healthy marriages. Let's pray.